What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, along with my co-host, Chris K. Today, we continue our trip down memory lane with part two of the multi-part series on the new wave of British heavy metal. Today's episode spans the years 1982 to 1987, which is considered the peak of the era. We're going to talk about some new bands to hit the scene at the time, as well as how some of the established bands we spoke about on the last episode fared as the decade went on. So with that said, don't forget to stick around to the end of the episode as we give you our big four Diamond Head songs. So let's get straight to it. Part two, the new wave of British heavy metal. All right, Chris, we are back here again with part two. And we're going to talk about some familiar bands to some people, um, especially if they're, you know, metal fans, if they're real deep metal fans, you know, the ones that actually care about all the older bands, <laughs> um, which is probably most of our uh, most of our fandom uh, around the world. I think a lot of them like those classic metal bands. What do you think? I mean, what's not to like? Yeah, what's yeah. not to like? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, uh, so these are the bands where the metal scene started, and there's a lot of respect for this era of time. Uh, not all of these bands that we talked about last week pers- uh, persisted and went into the next uh, stage where we're talking about today. So we're kind of getting into the meat of where the new wave of British heavy metal is. So a lot of these bands are the inspiration for bands that would come along later. You know, Iron Maiden, Diamond Head, guys like that, you know, inspired Anthrax, Metallica, and so on for the for the next generation. So these are the bands that I think most people would go, this is the new wave of British heavy metal. Right. I, I agree with that sentiment. All right. So go ahead and start us off. And uh, what's the first band we're going to talk about tonight? So we're going to kind of go in reverse order of how we did it last time, I think. Um, so we're going to kind of start with the the early successes, you know, the guys that we, we mentioned at the end of the last episode. So the first of those, I think we we need to go back into one of the bands that continued and really never strayed a whole lot from the, the sound, and that's Saxon. Um, so they, they, again, they started in 1977 and, and have gone all the way to the present. Uh, they released in 1983 Power and the Glory, which is still their best-selling album to date. So this is really where they, I mean, they hit their stride with, with uh, Denim and Leather, but this is where they really hit their mainstream appeal. Um, the biggest change here is that they have Nigel Glocker on drums, replace, replacing Pete Gill, but all the other members are the same from the previous albums. So you have Biff Byford on vocals, Graham Oliver guitar, Paul Quinn on guitar, and Steve Dawson on bass. Um, Alien director Ridley Scott did the cover art to this album, which I thought was a really cool fact. Did you know that? Um, I had read something about that recently when we were doing the research, and I really never kind of continued on with it. I looked at the album cover, and I'm like, eh, you know, what? Yeah, it's not amazing, but I think there's there's... (laughs) that aspect of you know this is he didn't do a lot of cover art to albums and ridley scott is a very accomplished director so it's just kind of a cool factoid yeah especially since uh i mean he was famous for uh he was famous for alien by that time so yes so the in 1984 they released crusader 
which is, again, pretty popular album. However, some critics were kind of saying, you know, they're taking more of a commercial approach with this album. And then Innocence is No Excuse came out in 1985, which was really considered more safe and commercial. So you can kind of see that even, you know, the, the stalwarts, um, you know, Saxon being one of the, the hugest ones, were kind of still drifting towards maybe a little bit more of a commercial sound for success, maybe pushed by the, the record companies to do so. Yeah, you know, obviously, you know, every band wants to cross over. Every band wants to get find that success, find that formula for success. And what is that formula for every band is different. Okay. Some bands, um, you know, they just they just completely change. You know, uh, they they go from one genre to another, almost like, you know, flipping a card. Zaxxon did it pretty good. And the thing I like about Zaxxon where, yeah, they kind of got a little more commercial. But at the same time, you could still tell that they had their their foundation. And it didn't didn't completely erase the foundation. They didn't wipe it clean. 100%. They didn't didn't take the approach of some of the other bands that would come later and just change genres to persevere. Exactly. And so, and I, and they, even for the most part, they maintained their sound, you yes. know, they, they had it, they had a nice clean sound, especially once they, once they got past Crusader, you know, when they got to the major labels and they got to use uh, bigger and better recording studios, they, it, they didn't overdo the production, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. And then they, they, but they, they made it better it was more modern for that time period and they continued that all the way through and that's the one thing i like about zaxon a lot is that you know they never stopped like like there was no breaks you know although there were times where you know maybe they took a couple years off here and there but it wasn't like they had a a seven-year hiatus and disappeared you know they were pretty consistent and they've released a ton of albums so, you know, that's the one thing I really, really like about them. And actually, Innocence is no excuse. When it came out in 90, 1985, and they, they did a, I'm pretty sure they did a video for the song Broken Heroes, but I know that song because it was on the radio, especially on rock radio or metal radio. Like the, I listened to a station in New York, it's actually out of South Orange, New Jersey, called WSOU, which was, I believe, South Orange University. Uh, it's a college station. They had a metal night. Actually, it was mostly metal. And then they would have, like, you know, the the non-metal days. It was more the common things where they were more metal all the time. And, you know, non-metal was, was rare. So that was a pretty cool station. I listened to that all the time. So I heard that song on there all the time. And then they had a single for, uh, I think, a couple years after Innocence is No Excuse came out. They did... Um, Oh, what's this? They did a Christopher's Cross song. Oh, right, uh, right, like the wind. They actually—that's a pretty cool version that they did. You know, so I, I, I really enjoyed Zaxxon, and this was not a bad time period for them because they found success. But at the same time, they didn't get the the major, huge American success that they were looking for. They didn't cross over like Maiden. They didn't cross yeah, over like I'm- Priest. They attempted, but it wasn't quite the crossover. But they still continued. They were still. Successful during this time. Exactly. They still persevered. I mean, very similar where, you know, girl school tried to come over, and we're going to talk about them in a little bit. They tried to come over, did not uh, fare as well, you know, but Zaxxon had some success, but it wasn't like Maiden and Priest, you know, and stuff like that. So 
we're going to talk more about them on the next episode. But in the meantime, who do you got? Um, let's go ahead and touch upon Def Leppard. Um, we talked about them briefly at the end of the last episode. And at this time, you know, you're talking 1982, 1983. They, they released, um, in 1981, they released uh, High and Dry. They found tremendous amount of success with that. But when I say tremendous amount of success, I mean, you're talking about they go from they they still they, they went from being a like I said uh, maybe a club band or something like that or maybe a, a small hall now they're opening up for major artists and that's a, that's a big step especially in the United States so then in 1983 they released Pyromania okay and they go through a lineup change in the middle of Pyromania as they as they fired Pete Willis for alcohol abuse um, but you know the band for the most part at that point remained the same. Joe Elliott, Steve Clark, Rick Savage, Rick Allen, and then they brought in Phil Collin, who recorded some of the guitar solos on the, on the record. Um, I do. Pyromania was huge, huge in the United States. Uh, that that's when Def Leppard became. You know, by the end of the cycle, they became a headlining act. You know, they they were. I remember them opening up for Billy Squire. Yeah, and then. They, they got off that bill and they were now headlining themselves, you know, and, and the Union Jack shorts were everywhere <laughs> because that's what that's what Rick Allen wore. And, you know, that's all he wore. And, and the jackets <laughs> and stuff. Like, my, my, one of my former co-workers was telling me because he, he, when he learned that I like metal, he was like, yeah, I used to wear my Def Leppard jacket everywhere. It was awesome. I had my hair just like Joe Elliott. And I was like, ooh. <laughs> And and he's probably referring to the 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 hysteria Def yes, Leppard, yes. where that was where yeah that's where Joe Elliott was famous for that jacket he wore and the, and the mullet that he was carrying around because his hair was actually full blown long on Pyromania and High and Dry obviously High and Dry he had curly yes. hair so but uh no De- I mean Def Leppard at this point I mean they were they were huge they weren't hysteria huge but Def Pyromania was pretty big. You know, I mean, for the most part, bigger than Maiden, bigger than Priest, you know, in terms of sales, that, 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 I mean, that spawned like five, five singles. Yeah. They really found crossover appeal here. You know, it's, it's, it's more of a glam pop metal sound, you know, obviously Mutt Lang wrote, co-wrote every song on this album. So the, the, the record company was pushing them in a certain direction and it worked out really well for Def Leppard, but they completely dropped off of being considered new album. Correct. Correct. Yeah. They, they left that, they had like a little tinge of it towards the end of the album. And by the time, you know, hysteria came around there, there was nothing left. Yes. But they, but at least they established their own identity. You know, that, that's the cool thing. They, they, they created, they didn't, uh, it's really weird when you think about it. Yeah, they were glam, but they were they weren't like anybody else. And that's, yeah, they didn't that's, wear the big hair and the the you know the makeup and all that stuff. They they were their own guys. No, they were their own guys. But even musically, they were their own guys. Like yes. they they had glam. You know, they were part of that scene, but they were they were a different breed, and that, and that's still what sets them apart to this day. A hundred percent. All right, so the third success and the third and final success uh, we're going to talk about, you go ahead and start it off because we've got a, a little bit to talk about with this band. Oh, for sure. Um, so Iron Maiden, we, we mentioned them last time. Uh, 
1975 to present, never stopped at all in that time. Uh, Number of the Beast comes out in 1982. You've got Bruce Dickinson on vocals replacing um, Paul Diano. You got Dave Murray on guitar, Adrian Smith on guitar, uh, Steve Harris on bass, and Clive Burr on drums. Now he was fired during the tour. Uh, Nico McBrain would replace him, and then they would record Peace of Mind in 1983, and then. Power Slave in 1984. So this trilogy of albums is really considered like their pinnacle trilogy um, or just pinnacle albums because they're not they're not technically related, but they're such a similar sound. There's there's such similar quality. These are amazing albums. I know some people are a little bit on the fence with Somewhere in Time because of the change in the the recording going to um, a, uh, a synth guitar sound. But it's still an amazing album. And it's one of my favorites, my personal favorites. And I know a lot of fans love this album. So in this, this, this period, and this would continue on for the next few years into the 1988 uh, with uh, Seventh Son and so on, this period of time is the golden era of of Iron Maiden. It's it's just pretty much every album from beginning to end is is a banger. Iron Maiden at this point were were they they it's like you you would almost think did they peak did they peak did they peak you know and you know Number of the Beast comes out amazing album front to back. And, you know, the anticipation the following year of their new album and Peace of Mind comes out. Now, you know, it is not song for song as good as Number of the Beast, but it is so strong that the momentum kept going. And then, you know, a year later again, Power Slave comes out and they and, and they're, it's led by... Um, if I'm not mistaken, the first single off of that was Two Minutes to Midnight that appeared on MTV, and they were just blowing it out of the water. I mean, and then Aces High comes after that, and they're just in, you know, they're in full, you know, take over the world domination mode at that point. The World Slavery Tour starts in Warsaw, Poland in late 1984, and the tour doesn't stop until... I believe it's 13 months later. And it was unbelievable. I mean, that was the first show I ever saw. First metal concert I ever went to in January of 1985. And I mean, I was just absolutely blown away by, by, by the performances, by the, 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 the song choices, by the whole everything. And so, yes, that trilogy of albums is absolutely amazing. And I don't think you can put too many trilogies up against that and, and compete and you know Metallica's uh, trilogy of albums and that's a choice because we had that discussion you know several episodes back you know the best three album runs and you and I talked about um, two different Metallica runs and I you can even consider two different Iron Maiden or even three different Iron Maiden runs because some of the stuff that they've done today is incredible as well so there's nothing that we can say about Iron Maiden that's going to detract from the fact that they basically left New Album behind. And they, but it's funny because they didn't necessarily stray away from the sound of New Album. They just they just matured and became so much better than that. 
they just had consistent skill, consistent talent, consistent good good songwriting. Their their uh, um, record company support was better than most bands. Management better than most bands. They just they had it all at this time. Oh yeah, when you when you talk about managers in this in this realm of time, there was none better than Sanctuary Music and Rod Smallwood. And you know, it was Andy Taylor and Rod Smallwood were the were the were the managing partners. And you know, Rod is still there to this day managing Iron Maiden. Now he took in some other bands, but he never gave those other bands the same kind of attention that he gave to Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden was his cash cow. And and they know it and they've made fun of it over the years. <laughs> but yeah. But you know what? They you know, between him and Steve Harris, the decision making that they've made, I would say they've got it probably 90% right most of the time. And we'll say 90% because they've made some blunders. Let's let's not be let's not be coy about that, you know. They've made some mistakes along the way. But their mistakes are way way outdone by the the the, the good stuff, great stuff that they've done over the years. Absolutely. So again, we're going to talk about Iron Maiden more on the next episode because we're going to go into that next generation. Uh, but now we're going to kind of transition into some of the moderate successes that we talked about on the previous episode. Alrighty. <sighs> Let's see. Let's just go straight ahead and talk about Diamond Head because they were a they were a big influence on a lot of the metal scene that uh, was happening in the United States. And we talked about lightning to the nations the last time. And so they finally get signed to a record deal and they released borrowed time in 1982. And I say it that way and with pregnant pauses, because there's something to be this. There was something left to be desired on this. And it's, it's a shame the band itself overall lots of different factors were interfering outside factors inside factors and it just it never hit again for them um what do you think about borrowed time some of the new stuff is pretty good um and i say it that way because they re-recorded two songs for this album they re-recorded am i evil and Lightning to the Nations. So the, the title track off the previous album appears on here again. Um, it's kind of a weird choice. I get it to some degree because the first album was uh, independent release, right? So, yeah. it, you know, they're they're picking what they feel are their biggest songs, putting them on here. Am I Able obviously is. But for the most part, you know, it's, it, what, seven tracks? It's not a very long album. You got re-repeated material. Um, I mean, essentially, you got two repeated songs and you got five new tracks. Yeah. So, I mean, quite honestly, if if you got if you're gonna go that route, then then do you know some of the other songs that you already recorded? Re you know re-record Lightning to the Nations into a, a more professional uh, realm because that's what they were complaining about. That's the reason why they redid those two songs is because then now they got a bigger budget for what it was worth. You had to do three okay. more of those re-recordings and it would have been honestly probably better. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. And, and so at that point it's like, 
you, you made a decision to do two, fill out the whole album, put in a couple more, and you know, you can maybe do side one as, as all re-recordings and side two all the new music. That would have been great. You know, I don't know. It just the, the new songs weren't that strong. They were okay. Well, we can't. I mean, honestly, we can't fully put this on Diamond Head themselves either because they were signed MCA, who totally pushed them in the wrong direction. They wanted to, them to be a more progressive band. They basically said, "We're signing you, but we don't want you to be you," and that happens time after time with so many bands. And this, they were a victim of this for sure. Talk, talk about record company fucking up shit. Okay, we're going to talk about several bands. Um, yeah. At least two. At least two that were on MCA that MCA just totally screwed. And at screwed least two. Yeah. And screwed them up. You know, because it, it's, not, it's not just screwing them, but they also screwed them up in general in terms of, you know, changing who they were, changing their identity. It's just... It's just bad, bad business. But yeah, MCA had a lot to do with it. They didn't have the greatest management. So, you know, what, what what do you do? I mean, all you can do is listen to your record company. So what ends up happening is you end up having to put out another record. So the following year, they put out Canterbury. And I mean, from that point forward, it was a completely different band. Musically, you know, there's there's a couple of guys that are different at that point, so it's just like nothing's the same, and it never will be really. Yeah, I, th- there was a lot of turmoil. Basically, uh, Sean Harris and Brian Tatler, who were the leaders of the band, wanted to move on after that. They just were not happy with the situation. They had a lot of disagreements with MCA, and they were just, they basically wanted either out of the music business or just to move on to something different. And that's really unfortunate for a band that started so strong with Lightning to the Nations. Exactly. You know, and, and Canterbury, look, it's produced well. <laughs> <laughs> but the music- it is, and there's some glimmers of good stuff on there. There really is. But, you, I mean, you're, you're listening to the, the album, and most of the first couple songs are like, uh, you know, girl, what are you doing, girl? You know, we're making music. You know, I just want to spend time with you, girl. It's like, what is this? We just, we just heard two albums that were all about, you know, demons and swords and witches and all kinds of stuff and like well now it's basically like trying to be the beatles hold hold on a second hold on a second let's not forget they did write a song called sucking my love (laughs) absolutely and that's but that's not i want to be you know with you girl like that's you know (laughs) i want something from you girl like I don't know. It was it, it, such a bad direction for this band. No, not it's not only that. So basically, this the band sounds. I mean, almost almost alternative at that point. It put I put it, I wrote it this way. Okay, they went more progressive and more alternative than Metallica did in the nineties. Okay, so like literally, they just they they did. You know, Metallica was copying them again in the nineties, trying to be different. You know, and it didn't work for 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 Diamond Head, and it almost didn't work for Metallica. Yeah. Um, and I say almost because you know what? For the most part, Metallica was still successful in the '90s. 
So we'll get past that point. But um, on on this record, there was one song called One More Night where, and I, and I noticed this a little bit while I was listening to other songs, but on this album, on this particular song, Sean Harris's vocals sound eerily reminiscent to Freddie Mercury. And and it, and it goes on throughout that. And, and I listened to the next song. I'm like, man, this guy sounds a lot like Freddie, which is funny because that's not the vocalist that I remembered that was on Lightning to the Nations. So it's more refined. He's actually using his voice more, but it's definitely not the same intonation and, and, and all that stuff. It, you know, he was doing something completely different. He's not in, moaning as much. No, he's not. He's not moaning. I mean, he's more professional. Yes. Right. So it, it, it's good in that way. But at the same time, you've lost your original audience completely. Yeah. I, it, it's, it just troubles me when you hear a, a band that goes this far in a different direction and it doesn't make sense. And you know exactly who is telling them to do this. And it's sad. Yeah. You know, and so after the album, you know, the band's not picked up by MCA. You know, they drop them off the label. And then the band fell apart in ni- by 1985. I mean, so they literally, you know, they were together since 1976. They were down. It was a, it was a nine-year grouping, you know, for the most part. And, but I, they, they probably fell apart before 85. I mean, they were just probably not on the same page but way before that. But they've regrouped since then. You know, and they've they've, you know, they've reformed in '90. They broke up again, you know, uh, at the end of '92, and they got back together in 2000. And they they're currently still an active band. They re-recorded "Lightning to the Nations," which is weird because, you know, how many times are you gonna do the same shit over and over again? But the new singer's not bad. I, I, I from what I from what I heard, so he's pretty pretty decent. Yeah, it's 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 not bad. It's not the same, but. You can't keep things the same forever. So, Exactly. All right, so what do you got now for the next band? I just want to mention, mention this one real quick because uh, we, we talked about Praying Mantis in the previous... Excuse me. We talked about Praying Mantis in the previous episode, um, but they were not at all active during this time. So we're not going to really go over them, but we're going to talk more about them on the next episode as they would return in 1990. Um, so I'm going to mention Angel Witch. So, Angel Witch, I'm going to correct something from the previous episode. Uh, They were not active from 1976 to present, uh, as research said. There was was basically small breakups in between many years. So, real quickly, they they were active from 1976 to 1981, then 82 to 83, 84 to 1990, 97 to 98, 2000 to 2001, 2002 to 2003... And 2008 to present. So, as you can hear, there's there was a few breakups in between. There was uh, some time in there where uh, Kevin tried to bring the band over to the United States, and there was issues with that. Uh, but, basically, they released Screaming and Bleeding in 1985. So, there's a pretty big gap between the previous album and this one. Um, he brought on, let's see, David Tatum on vocals to replace himself. Uh, Kevin was... Res- it was suffering from some vocal cord issues at the time and David Tatum came in and actually sounds really good. He's a great vocalist. Um, Peter Gordelier on bass replacing Kevin Riddles and Dave Hogg 
on his second tenure with the band because he had actually left in 1980 and then came back for this record. Um, and then Frontal Assault came out in 1986 with Spencer Holman on drums replacing Dave Hogg. So you can see there's a little bit of turmoil. There's not a, not just you know breakups and reformations, etc. But they're you know changing band members out even in this time. Uh, so I would say their peak album is their first album, to be honest. But I really like these two as well. I think when when David came into the band, it's not necessarily what Kevin wanted, but it was what was necessary because he did end up firing him after this time period too, in 1986. So he wanted to be vocalist. It just wasn't possible, and he spent time trying to uh, not repair, but like build his voice up so that he could be the singer again. You know, the one thing that I, I, I noticed about it. Obviously, you know, David uh, Tatum is a completely different singer yeah, than Kevin. Absolutely. Um sound wise, you know, intonation wise, you know, the whole the whole gamut. He's just two different singers. I mean it, it's more disparate than Blaze Blaley and Bruce Dickinson. Okay. But um you know, they, they tried, you know, Screaming and Bleeding in 85, they tried to tra stay true to the, the Wobbum sound. It wasn't, they didn't stray that far off, but you can see that they're trying to expand and, and include other elements of, of, especially metal. I mean, it's just, they were trying to bring in other things, but still trying to remain true to their roots. Um, Frontal Assault, I, it's just, it didn't do it for me, you know, and, uh, just it, it it became you know just almost like a burden in my opinion <laughs> okay <laughs> you know it's one of those things it just it just didn't sit with me um i mean i like the album i it's it's a little different but i still think it's pretty good um it's just I mean, it's, I, I, i'll take screaming and bleeding over that i i know? agree i think i i think there is a like there's a step down on each album to some degree, but like frontal assault itself, the track I think is really cool. It's a nice start to the album. Um, it's just, it's going to be one of those things when it's a different vocalist and you're, you really like that first album. Sometimes it's not, it's not the same and you may not feel the same about the band with a different vocalist. So right, it's, exactly. it's up to interpretation exactly up to interpretation especially when you when that different singer interprets the songs you know the, things change you know especially when it's got a different a different tonality completely yeah i mean we we talked about that with with anthrax before you know oh yeah it, completely. It, when a songwriter yeah. writes a song and then it goes to the vocalist they're interpreting it in their own way and that can cause its own issues too so, <laughs> all right. So, who do you got? All right, I'm going to talk about the Tigers of Pantang. This should be interesting. Um, <laughs> all right. So, you know, at this point in time, you know, Tigers it comes out in 1980 uh, with, uh, was it Wildcat or the, what was the album before Wildcat? I, I can't remember. But they, they, they've got two good albums to start their career with. One really good one and then one pretty decent one, you know. And then, you know, 
they've been signed to MCA from the beginning, but as you can tell, each album progressively changes more and more and more. And this is this is one of these. I, I have to believe that this is one of these record contracts where the record company holds so much power over you that you do everything that they say, despite basically cutting your balls off. You know, you are just literally at their mercy. And the cage and then follow up the wreckage. <laughs> what a, <laughs> a lot of ages here. Yeah, what a terrible <laughs> um, name. Just really, yeah, it, it does not do anything. And let, let's talk about, I mean, the cage. Let's go over a little bit about what Tigers of Pantang are. They started in 1978. They worked their way all t- together until 1984. Then they got back together again in 85 to 87. Then they they are apart until 1999, where they regrouped, reformed, and have been together ever since. Again, talked about this and mentioned it last week. A lot of these bands have been together, and, and they, they basically performed the, the festival circuit, sort of like how um, Rock and the Range is here in the United States, or what's the other one? Um, the the What's the one on the boat? Uh that Eddie Trunk hosts every year. I'm trying to remember. Um, but it's like that. That's for American bands, most dominantly American bands, American glam metal type bands, where, you know, the European festivals will have a, a certain days just for like all the classic bands and stuff like that. You know, so essentially all these bands that have gotten back together in the 90s and 2000s are all, you know, still playing together, but they all, they, they're on that, that particular circuit. Between the clubs and having a good festival, which is cool. Um, Tigers of Pang Tang, 1982, release The Cage. Um, who, you know, you got John Deverell in, on vocals, Rob Weir on guitar, Freddie Purser, who replaced John Sykes on guitars and keyboards, Richard Rocky Laws on bass, and Brian Dick on the drums. <laughs> Um, so this album, I mean, man, I got a whiff of glam metal from this album. More, uh, more whi- like a stank of, of glam metal. <laughs> <laughs> ah. But here's so here's the funny thing. It gets worse on the next album. Yeah. But what what's interesting is this is 1982. Okay, when you think about it, okay, Motley Crue came out with uh with um. Too Fast for Love, 81, 82, right? That, as much as that was the beginning of glam metal, for the most part, that does not sound like this album. This album from Tigers is got such a classic glam sound that would not appear for another couple of years in the LA scene. It's a very interesting. It to me is almost like a like a an alien album came down from out of nowhere and said, "Boop, we're going to put you here." But really, all of a sudden, the scene explodes a couple years later in with that almost exactly same sound. Motley Crue wasn't there yet, and Motley Crue really never had that sound. Uh, they never had the the poppy vocals, and you know, and for the, for the most part, this album screams, "I'm part of a soundtrack," you know, like. The, the the footloose soundtrack or something like that <laughs> you know um it is it is just strange to me I, I uh the only thing i really do like about this album is the vocalist he, he sounds a little bit like a cross between ron keel and Janie lane 
uh, tone-wise. I can hear that, yeah. You know, it, it was it, it was something, it, I'm listening to it, and I'm like, who does this sound like? Who does this sound like? And then all of a sudden, it just hit me. Um, the album, you know, uses electronic drums in the middle of it, and, you know, mixed in with the acoustic drums, that just makes no freaking sense to me. And then, of course, you get this cover of a song called Love Potion Number no. 9. It's not a bad cover. It's an interesting choice to cover, but not a bad cover. And yeah, Ozzy just now, did the cover of that one, right? N- no. <laughs> patient <laughs> he, number nine. He's, yeah. yeah, he's patient number nine. Um, and actually, lyrically, that's not a bad song. Um, but anyway, just a really quick touch on this Love Potion number nine. That was song was written by Lieber and Stoller, okay, who is the duo behind such hits as Hound Dog, Jailhouse Rock, you're so square, baby. I don't care. Yakety yak, Charlie Brown, Poison Ivy. There goes my baby, and Stand by Me, and a countless host of other songs. So, if any of you out there know fifties and sixties songs, those are some really big hits that that those guys wrote, as well as Love Potion Number Nine. So, that that songwriting team of Lieber Stoller was huge, you know. And there's some basically. They made the careers of Elvis Presley and the Drifters and the Coasters and, and all those other guys. And the Clovers. And the Clovers, correct, who did the original Love Potion number nine. Um, so like I said, not a bad cover. Um, and then you get to the wreck age. Well, so I want to mention that this this is one of those bands that got screwed by MCA. Um, yes, they were an MCA band, and hence they every, every album got worse and worse and different and more different. Yeah, they they basically broke up this lineup that you just talked about with the cage, broke up due to issues with MCA. They had it and they left, and then they would come back in 1985. It's a whole new band, except for Brian Dick. Pretty much <laughs> everybody else was replaced. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Steve Lamb replaced Rob Weir. Neil Shepard replaces Red Purser. Dave Donaldson replaces Rocky Laws. Brian Dick still remained. Um, yeah, this this album is a full blown. Uh, I wouldn't even call it glam, dude. It's just like pop synth. It's soundtrack music. I mean, if you listen to any goofy ass eighties movie soundtrack, all the songs sound like this. I mean, it's incredible how this how much of this album sounds like a soundtrack from the eighties. And it's not one of those things where he's like, oh, that, you know, that was the soundtrack of my life. No, no, this, this wasn't it, <laughs> but it, it was on a, it was, it's that, I don't know. It sounded that bad to me. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you... so, so the only, like you said, Brian Dick, John Deverell, that is it. That are, those are the only two members of the band that are the same. And John Deverell's not even a remember an original member of the band. He replaced Jess Cox, who actually would come back later. Um, but, so this is a wreck of an album, which no pun intended. Actually, a little, a little, <laughs> All the puns a intended. little intended. Um, <laughs> it's it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. I mean, from be- from beginning to end, I, like I'm listening to it. I'm trying to find something. You're right. It sounds like every song was trying to to be on a soundtrack for a coming of age teen movie no it's it's it was weird i mean like you you would think top gun footloose yeah uh, you know 
you know, Freddy's Freddy Freddy Nightmare on Elm Street had more metal bands on it, you know, but uh it's just this is one of those things where like especially like if you see those cheesy 80 movies that really you know some of the famous actors did it you know as their first role this is the music that's on there it's just crazy how how goofy it sounds you know but mm-hmm. anyway it, it you're right it sucked so we move on <laughs> from them well to burning in the shade 1987 how'd you yeah. feel about that album it's okay. <laughs> it's probably not as bad as the wreck age. <laughs> so on the cover, there's this guy. He's buried in the ground and he's screaming in the desert. You know, and I want to say there's like I can't I can't 100% tell what's going on in the background, but I would assume there's there's probably you know birds of prey gonna come eat this guy who's stuck in the. It's kind of how I felt listening to this album. In reality, I mean, the album is, is just a continuation of more 80s type music. Yeah. Um, it's It doesn't get much better. It's maybe, you know, maybe there's a, a better hook here and there on the album. But for the most part, it doesn't really do anything for their career. Um, I mean, the, the cut, it's funny. I saw the, the uh, a remastered, quote unquote, version of the, of the cover and like they, they, made the colors a little bit less uh dynamic you know they muted them down a little bit and it, it's just it, uh it's just not good <laughs> it's just i don't know it's not much to say about it you know it's, it's a although, downward spike for the band although the, the album cover Okay, so I say is depicts one of my favorite areas in the world, which is Monument Valley. <laughs> so that's what that's supposed to be in the background over there in Utah slash Arizona area. Okay, that's a nice little tidbit there. At least there's something positive. And that's about it. <laughs> All right, what do you got now? Um, so I just want to mention this one pretty briefly. We don't have to talk about it for much longer. Um, so... Demon, we mentioned last time. Um, they were a really consistent band. I thought this was kind of cool that they basically have been going, you know, they they took a five-year break in, from 92 to 97, but they've been pretty much going since 1979 and releasing consistent albums. Uh, they had The Unexpected Guest in 1982, The Plague in 1983, British Standard Approved in 1985, uh, The Heart, Heart of Our Time in 1985 as well. Uh, breakout in 1987, and I'm just going to mention these. This is la- this is kind of the last time we're going to mention them um, in this because basically they just ca- stayed consistent all the way through to 2016 when they released their last album. Um, so, taking the world by storm in 1989, hold on to the dream 1991, blowout 1992, spaced out monkey in 19 or sorry 2001. Better Than the Devil You Know in 2005, Unbroken 2012, and Cemetery Junction in 2016. Um, so they, they've really been kind of under the radar. I, I, I've mentioned to a couple friends, I was like, are you familiar with them? And most, most everybody says no. So it's kind of interesting, but I, I like some of their albums. I, I would say most of them. They've really stayed in that kind of new album sound all this time. Um, the only constant in the band has been Dave Hill since 
since the beginning. And there, so if you're going to check out any of these albums, I think you're, you're fine because you're going to get a new album experience. Um, I checked out, what was it? Um, hold on to the dream 1991. They still sound like they, they did in those first couple albums to be honest. And it, <laughs> and it's not a bad thing. Like there's that consistency that if you like one album, you're probably going to like all of them except for British standard approved in 1985. What a weird album. I, I don't even know what to say. It's like they, they were very inspired by Pink Floyd and they decided to do ambient music with like a psychedelic tone to it. And there's not even some of the songs, there's not even lyrics. There's just like sounds. It's really hard. Like check this one out. Cause you, you're going to be like, what, you know, when you're, when you're putting it in the middle of a new album catalog, it's so interesting, but definitely a band worth checking out. I think kind of a hidden gem. Fair enough. I mean, I've never really given them the, the time of day. I, like I said, up until we talked about this whole series, I had never heard of them. Yeah. So, uh, which is interesting because I do know a lot about the new wave of British heavy metal. And for whatever reason, never heard of these guys. So um, I did check out a little bit of their earlier stuff last week, but this later stuff I, I have not. So I will definitely give it a shot. Yeah, I would, I would say the homework on that one is is uh, hold on to the dream because uh, I, I thought that was pretty. there were some pretty good songs on there. And then definitely just for the sake of it, just check out British Standard Approved because it was so whacked out. I bet. I bet. I will definitely. All right, so let's move on to Samson. Samson. So that's Bruce Dickinson's old band. Um, so by this point, Bruce has left. Um, he and, and so now the, Paul Sampson regroups um, and he replaces Bruce with uh, vocalist Nicky Moore and he replaces Thunderstick on drums with Peter Ju- or Pete Jupp. Um, before the storm. Um, so Bruce Dickinson joins Iron Maiden. He leaves in 1993 and is replaced by Blaze Bailey. Now, the reason why I say that is because this guy, Nicky Moore, replaces Bruce Dickinson, much like Blaze replaced Bruce Dickinson, and he kind of has a little bit of a sound like Blaze. It's kind of weird to me. Not exactly like Blaze, but because he's not Bruce, it's very significantly noticeable that it's not the same singer. The songs are okay. Um... So the the band right now is is basically going through struggles of of continuing to try to move on and move forward. Because remember, at that time, nineteen eighty one, they were a bigger band than Iron Maiden, but Iron Maiden surpassed them and dusted them in nineteen eighty two. So you know, Paul Sampson's trying to hold on, and it, it's it's not it's not really working. I guess you could say. Um, but then a couple of years later, they get they put out another album. Don't get mad, get even. Who, who are they talking about? I don't know. You know, so they have the same lineup on this on this band on this album, but eventually, at this point, um, they break up. I th- I think they were one that had just continuous management issues throughout their entire career, which is really unfortunate. Um, I didn't mind Behind the Storm and Don't Get Mad Get Even. I thought both of them were actually pretty good albums. They're just they're not metal albums. Neither of them. They are hard rock, kind of bluesy. Uh, 
And Nicky Moore really has a unique voice. Like, I mean, his voice is not bad. I, I wasn't, you know, trying to disparage the voice or anything. No, I, I didn't take it, it that way at sound all. Pretty good. I, I, I just thought he he has a really unique sound. He has the this this um, kind of deeper voice that at times is just really different than anybody I've heard. Um, I think he's definitely one. Or the, at least check these albums. He's definitely one to kind of notice because his his vocals are very interesting and i mean that i mean that in a positive way you just can't consider these new album at all and you can't you really can't consider them metal albums no he definitely they they changed their style they changed the thing i mean definitely more in the hard rock realm it wasn't bad hard rock you know you could definitely tell it was blues based hard rock but at the same time, you know, you're talking a band who was actually on their way to making it. I mean, they were, yeah, they were above Maiden. You think about that, you know. But why did Bruce leave? If they were above Maiden, what was so attractive about Maiden that that Bruce left? And the, you know, management, you could see that these guys were hungry. So there was all sorts of different things. And then you have this guy who's dressing up in S&M gear in the background on drums. You know, so Bruce kind of saw the writing on the wall and said, eh, no pun intended. And that that was it. He just like, I'm moving on, you know? And, yeah, I, uh, no, I agree. And I and I always, I mean, I prefer Iron Maiden in every way. Um, I just, I think it's going to be a really tough sell if you're, a premier new album band. You're playing in that sound, and then you just go pretty much in a completely different direction, and you're you, you can't expect the fan base to follow you. It doesn't mean they won't. It just means that there is always going to be that likelihood that they won't. You know, if, if you're if you are, um, who's a good example? <sighs> if Metallica. Is a good example, I guess. You you put out Injustice for All. You put out the Black Album. Black Album's a little bit different. But then you go to Load. Some of those people that were around for Kill 'Em All are not going to enjoy what you do. But it's a gamble, and it, and it, musically you have to take it if that's the way you're feeling, if that's what you're writing, and that's what you're you're expressing as an artist. You have to take those gambles, and sometimes they're not going to pay off. I think in hindsight, go ahead. No, but I was going to say the biggest difference with, let's say, Metallica doing it, and it's not because it's who they are. They actually succeeded at writing good music in a different format. But I'm going to disagree. I'm going to say that Samson did write good music. It just doesn't appeal to as many people. And that's always going to happen. There's going to be stuff that it's still quality, but it's not going to appeal to as many people. But but let's think about that, right? Okay, so the the album before before the storm, okay, mm-hmm. was was their you know their big album with Bruce on vocals yeah. and stuff like that. But it still wasn't great. It still wasn't you know it wasn't high and dry, or it wasn't you know uh, on through the night from Def Leppard that 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 helped break the band. Okay, but it was the next stepping stone. Agreed. But, but you know. Whereas, you know, Iron Maiden, you get Iron Maiden, you get Killers, and then you have Number of the Beast. That's a huge stepping stone. I mean, they jumped off the cliff onto the, the next mountain. Oh, 100%. And I'm going to actually so, throw one out 
crazier. I actually enjoyed this stuff more than I enjoyed the Samson stuff with Bruce. Because I felt like Bruce didn't quite fit that band. He did an amazing job, and his vocals are are always amazing. But I don't think he belonged in Samson. I think he belonged in Iron Maiden. And what I hear from these Samson albums, I enjoy more. They didn't have... I think in hindsight, they are good albums, but for the wrong audience. And I think if you're if you're a, a blues rock enjoyer, you know, somebody that likes that kind of music, that's worth checking out. But I think if you're a metal guy, these are pass. But that's my, my, my point with Metallica, though. Uh-huh. Okay, because, yeah, yeah, they put out, a, a, or, or Samson put out a, a decent hard rock album yeah okay but it did did it have the appeal to gain a new audience okay whereas metallica uh, timing is everything they, they right metallica lost a, a a core portion of their audience when they went from justice to the black album but the flip side of it of it is, is that they gained such a bigger audience but because of of the black album that that bigger audience was more open to stuff that came out on load and look and reload but the stuff that they did on load and reload that was good was still much better than the average hard rock band i get that but my comparison was not really saying that they're the same it's it's more of just that that gamble that you take no, I know, but what but I'm trying to get is the re- it worked for Metallica. It didn't work, you know, just taking the gamble and changing genres or doing something. It worked for Metallica to a degree because they would still have heaviness to it. But they where, also had you know, radio coverage, and they also had right exactly you know, tour support. They had a record company that promoted them, and I gotta tell you, the these albums had no support. So I'm not saying no, they're on the same level not. by any means. But a band makes a huge difference. Yeah, a huge difference. <laughs> exactly. All right. What else? What do we got now? Um, All right. So um, I'm going to move on to uh, let's talk about Girl School. Um, so again, this is a band that was very consistent with releases dating back to 1978 to uh, current, or not releases, but they they're active from 1978 to current. Um, this period of time is honestly probably their biggest upheaval so while a lot of bands were finding success girl school was making a lot of changes um 19 excuse me in 1982 they released screaming blue murder uh during this time enid williams would leave she was one of the original members on bass and they would bring in gil weston um gil being short for gislane um, so an all still all girl band. When I f- first saw Gil Weston, I guess my expectation was it was a guy. Um, I can't assume, uh, uh, assume gender these days. So, <laughs> or or then back then either. Or back then either. <laughs> um, so what ends up happening because of this? You had a three girl, uh, you know, lead vocal uh, trio, which was uh. Kim McAuliffe, Kelly Johnson, and Eden Williams, and they were they had that sound. Well, when that kind of goes out of out of place, then it changes the dynamic and the power structure of the band too. 
So Play Dirty comes out in 1983 with that same lineup. Um, and then Running Wild comes out in 1985. And this is where things change very drastically. Uh, they bring on uh, Chris Bonacci on lead guitar to replace Kelly Johnson. So they lost one of their vocalists. And then Jackie Bodamede for lead vocals on all but two tracks. So you go from having the original three vocalists to now pre- pretty much a primary vocalist that's completely different. And uh, Je- uh, Kim McAuliffe is, the, is only on two songs on vocals. So huge change, much more uh, commercial sound. You can tell the record company's trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. And then uh, Jackie Bottomede would leave the band. So basically only being with the band for one year. And then they released Nightmare at Maple Cross in 1986. And at this point, Kim McAuliffe is the only lead vocalist. So what really changed here is you had this kind of like punkish girl power trio. And it really changes into more of a... um, somewhat glamish sound during this time and with that kind of that that peak era of of uh the the new album sound cop missed by this band you know they they were trying to find themselves when they already kind of found themselves at the beginning so they kind of took a detour and then they ended up missing the the greatest popularity of the of the of the era you know, they still continue to put stuff out, um, but it just it's kind of unfortunate that they missed the, the peak era of this time. The the thing about this time that they that 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 it is so there's so much upheaval is that this is the point in time in which they decided that they were gonna try and get success in the United States. And because of that, they tried all sorts of different things from getting a single recorded by, you know, Naughty Holder and Jim Lee from Slade to having uh, the rest of that same album produced by Spencer Proffer, who was big with Quiet Riot. Um, there, lots of different things. Um, so they were they were heading into that glam AOR oriented sound, but it wasn't them. And so they tried for three years to, to, to break through in the United States. And it just turn after turn, they just, they continued to fail. Luckily for, for Kim and for Denise, they stuck it out. They returned back to, to England. You could say with their tail between their legs or whatever you want to look at it, whichever way you want to look at it. But bottom line is they returned and they, they said, you know what, we're going to stick this out. We're going to continue. And they've been together ever since. And that's great, you know, and they were able to basically regroup, restart, and and continue on being a hard rock slash metal girl band, mm-hmm. you know, so. And they would, you know, a lot, of, what I like about it is, you know, you see a lot of these lists of members of bands and there's 87 members. They pretty much stayed within a, a core group and members that left would come back. Um, Tracy Lamb, uh left and then came back and then now is currently in the band again. Um, Kelly Johnson would have a second uh, run with the band and Enid Williams would come back for quite a while. So I I think that's always kind of cool when you have a pretty 
tight list of members. Yeah, of course. You know, you you want to you want familiar familiar relatively. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, what was that? I can't I can't I can't say that word familiarity. familiarity? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, they know each other. So the bottom line is is that, you know, if if someone's willing to give it another chance, you know, and, and they didn't end on bad terms, most of the time people like that are gonna come back in and out of your life. You know, even and even in some cases, even if they end in bad terms, let me look at Vinnie Vincent and Kiss, you know. Um Gene Simmons continues to still try, and he hasn't done it for a while, but still try to, you know, give him a little bit of an olive branch. And he he tried to bring him out during Gene's tour with the the that that uh not a, the safe with all his music on oh, it. Oh yeah, he yeah. brought Vinny out a couple of times. He brought Ace with him a couple of times. You know, to the point to the point where Ace stole Gene's band. That's that's how that went. You know, <laughs> so now Ace's band is a much more professional band than he used to have. Um, I mean, to the point he, he Richie Scarlett was Ace's best friend for the most part, and he fired him. And you know, I mean, I think he still helps him out and stuff like that. But Richie doesn't play with Ace anymore because he's just not as professional as you know the guys that are playing with with Ace right now. And I think that's a huge help for Ace and why things or have turned around in, in the most recent years for Ace. So that, kudos to Gene Simmons for that. But regardless, my point was is that when you have these players that you're familiar with and you continue to play with and they, they stay within your your, or, your your orbit, you know, your circle of friends, you know, you, you, you get back. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. And the guy's like, look, I can't do this anymore. I got, a, you know, I got a day job, whatever. But, you know, they stay together and that's, that's the good thing. All right, so... The last band that's left on this moderate or middle era of New Album is Witchfind. And um, we talked about them last week. And so this week we're just going to bring up uh, some of the things that they did after uh, 1981. Um, and basically, just to kind of give a refresher, they started in 1973 uh, all the way to 1984. Then they got back together with the New Album resurgence of, of the late 90s early 2000s uh, they got back together in 99 and they're still together to this day you know playing the circuit um, they released cloak and dagger in 1983 um, with uh, vocalist luther belts replacing steve bridges mantalo on guitar pete Ser- sergey on bass uh, i think it's <laughs> sergey but i could okay Sergi, Dirgi, okay. Um, well, I'm just going to say Sergei because he's European. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, Gras scores be on drums. Um, what do you? What I I didn't really dig too deep into Witchfind personally. Uh, I liked a little bit of their early stuff, but I kind of fell away from the the latter stuff. So they had a. What are your thoughts on Cloak and they Dagger? They had a rough go. Um, some of the stuff on Cloak and Dagger is all right. I'm not a big fan of Luther Belt's voice. Um, it's it's a little different, and the recording quality of these two albums is pretty weak. Uh, so basically, here's what happened: they they moved on from Rondelet Records uh, after after the second album. 
and they went to Expulsion. Expulsion, or on, on Expulsion, they put out Cloak and Dagger, and then Expulsion went bankrupt. So they didn't have support from the record company. They had to pretty much go find a new record company and put out another album because there was no support. There was no way they were going to keep putting records out. They had to, you know, immediately get back into the studio so that they wouldn't, um, so they would have money to eat. Uh, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, they go to Mausoleum, and Mausoleum puts out Lords of Sin, and it goes bankrupt. Uh, they so from that album they had Ed Wolf replacing Pete Sergi on bass, and um, it's about the same as Cloak and Dagger. It's just there was this sense of urgency to put something out because they basically lost that that previous record in a way when there when uh, expulsion went out of business and then mausoleum goes out of business and then they were like you know what we can't do this anymore we got to take a break um and they they you know they broke up for 15 years uh I think Expulsion and Mausoleum are completely fitting names for record companies that do, you know, this kind of business because it was it was a mausoleum for their career at this time. Um, you know, what's funny about that is that, OK, you know, Mausoleum Records, I don't know if it's the same company that still exists today, but there is a, there is another Mausoleum Records out there. Um, they put, you know, they're very similar to uh, all those labels that just basically reissue crap or they'll do um not bootlegs but they'll do unauthorized versions of certain things mm. you know like like you know gilby clark puts together a guns and roses band and they put together an album and it's called you know like the you know the the sounds of gilby clark and it's all guns and roses songs that he recorded over time with different artists it's shit like yeah. that you know um all those small little record companies the thing that that I that looking at all these bands that that failed miserably, okay. What I what I noticed about certain ones is that they weren't good to begin with. They were okay, right? But of course, you know, all these bands that are these are great are being signed up by majors. The ones that are middling are sign are getting signed by middling record companies, and the ones that are weak are being signed by weak record companies. It's just the way it is. And unfortunately, when you get signed by a weak record company, yeah, you're like, yeah, we got a record deal, and they own 100% of my life, you know, as opposed to a deal that is fair and works for both parties. Okay. Judas Priest had that problem with Gull Records. Okay. Um, lots of lots of bands have had that but problem. But think if, if they had gone much longer with the same treatment and they went to another record company that failed and another record company that failed, who knows if Judas Priest would have continued on? Because, yeah, they had the bad experience with the first one, but then they, they got onto a much better situation. Oh, with CBS, but they, but they had, they had someone in their corner who was also good, you know, that was able to bring them and and get them seen by a, a major label yeah. record company. So I, I, I can't you know, pin it a hundred percent on the band all the time. Um, you know, they may not put up the best stuff, 
But when you're that can art can be affected by your state of mind too. And when you're in a situation where it's loss after loss after loss and it's not necessarily your own fault, it's it's fish uh, you know conditions around you along with other things like if one member of the band leaves because they can't they don't have enough money to eat, you know, and then you lose that chemistry you know it's it's just unfortunate it's that's life it happens but yeah they're not every band's destined to for greatness either so there's always this kind of balance in between of you know what could have been but also some bands just aren't ever going to make it to that degree so i get i get what you're saying i just think there's 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 always two sides to the coin as well as an edge Oh no! There's, I mean, there's always more to it, you know. It's it's also your manager. It's also the people taking care of your business deals, you know. And and the manager sitting there going, yeah, you know, because he knows somebody. Yeah, he'll say, oh, I know this guy at the label, you know, or he met the guy the day before. But since you know, business manager is not the the the, the savviest in the world. He gets he meets this other guy, and this other guy gives him a bullshit deal because. Quite honestly, I've never heard of Expulsion Records. Right. Or know? or the, the manager was savvy, but then he all he spent the band's money on was drugs for himself or, or something along those lines, which... Or even drugs yeah, for the band. We've, we've heard know? about these things. But I've never heard of Ron... Yeah, I've never heard of Rondelet Records. I've never heard of Expulsion. I've heard of something called Mausoleum, but I don't know if it's the same place, you know, same company. Yeah. So it's just one of those things. You know, some bands like Def Leppard put their own stuff out. They, they, you know, like Iron Maiden, you know, they got, they got helped with a recording with, uh, with Neil Kay, the guy, the guy from, uh, Neat, he didn't, he wasn't from Neat Records. He was from the, he was the DJ that basically promoted the crap out of Iron Maiden, helped them, you know, finance the record for, for Soundhouse tapes. They recorded sound. It wasn't even called the Soundhouse tapes when they really first decided to do it. It just happened to be that way because they were at the Soundhouse. And, you know, they get signed, you know, uh, was it, what's the Rifola bludgeon, I think is the name of Def Leppard's record company. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, what was it? Uh, Guns N' Roses had their own as well. I mean, a lot of these bands put out their own stuff or they have their own company that you have to deal with in order to get through to them. And a lot of times that's that is a, a huge factor in their favor. You have good business management, and if you don't, you end up in the scrap. And hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, oh yeah. So they would continue on in nineteen ninety nine, like we said. Uh, they released Witching Hour, and then seven years later, they released Play It's Death in two thousand eight. Um, so basically, it was the same lineup as before. However, they had a new singer, Harry Harrison. Um, this is very different than a new album sound. It's it feels more of like a like a biker band is the way I would put it. It's a little more rough. His vocals are drastically different, and um, it it's not really my thing. But at the same time, it's worth checking out just because it's so so different than the early stuff. I think I think that's kind of a good mindset to have when it comes to any of these bands, um, because you might find something that you really enjoy. 
yeah, you're you're right. I mean, there's there's always something that's you can find in in any of this stuff, and and if it's decent, it's going to be worth listening to. You know, some some things can't be as bad as Canterbury. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to move on now to um, the second wave of the new wave of heavy metal or new wave of British heavy metal, excuse me. Um, and so this wave, we're, we're, we're about mid nineties, excuse me, mid eighties at this point. Um, and there's some pretty cool bands, uh, at this time, um, that they don't necessarily bust the door down, but they get some pretty good exposure and they, um, they they make it you know they make a name for themselves let's put it that way. Um, so why don't we go ahead and start with Witchfinder General, which we kind of what briefly mentioned or we did or we didn't last week. I think we we mentioned them because their name is so similar to Witchfind, and I okay. I just said basically, you know we're gonna hit upon them next time. Okay, so Witchfinder General. Um, Started in 1979, so basically at the at the beginning of the new the the new album uh, period, um, and lasted until 1984. Uh, they re- reformed again in 2006 uh, up to 2008. So, Witchfinder General is basically considered the pioneers of doom metal. Um, so, what I liked about listening to these, the first two albums and the, the two albums that mean the most and, and pretty much. Are, are the ones that are available out there. Um, and the only two that they did, there's a third one that was done in 2008, but for the most part, the first two, Death Penalty in 1982 and Friends of Hell in 1983. Um, those two albums, very instrumental in the doom metal sound. Um, you know, there you can obviously tell there's a, a Black Sabbath influence in those records, but they got some cool riffs and you can hear... Bands like The Sword have been influenced by them. Um, there's a little bit, and not the same thing, but there's a little bit of influence somewhere in there that you can pick up from down um, is, is also in there. And, and I, like I said, it's, it's very light. But I like Death Penalty. Um, it's funny because they have that song, Witchfinder General, in there. And that, to me, is the most catchy of the songs on there. But the rest of the album is really not like that song, although it's got cool riffs. The, the whole album's got really cool riffs, but I think the album's heavier than that one song, but that one song happens to be the most catchiest to me. Um, what do you think of that, that first album from them? I mean, it. yeah, you nailed it on the head with that kind of like Black Sabbath influence. It does have even a little bit of, I would say, like a Led Zeppelin influence because it's got that... Mm-hmm. Um, same kind of drumming style to a degree. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. So, I really like it. I think it's it's a tragically overlooked band, and you know, there's a reason for that. Their their choice in album covers really <laughs> um, limited their a, appeal. Yeah, yeah, you put a damper on sales. <laughs> hey, but I was gonna run out and buy that if it was available to me. Let me tell you. <laughs> So uh, basically they have the band and I think it was one of their roadies surrounding a, a naked woman and then on the back of the cover um, uh, she appears to have been victimized. I guess that would be the best way to put it. Um, very 
uh, touchy subject today, obviously, but even at the time, it it sparked a lot of controversy. Well, that and type of fact that didn't they do it at a church? Yes. So. Well, no, it was in a graveyard, which may have been at a church. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but um, yeah, there. I mean, there was some taste issues there, you know. So, I think I think you know, art is art, and it deserves to to have its um, day in the sun. Fair, <laughs> yeah. Um, but at the same time, I can also understand why it would piss some people off. Yes, it's for sure. <laughs> Definitely. But, um, no, but, you know, stylistically, musically, it's it's good stuff, you know. But, yeah, if you're going to put an album uh, cover like that, you're going to suffer um, from backlash. It's one of two things. It's either going to gain... A bunch of um, interest based on the controversy, or it's going to do the opposite. You know, it, it's either going to affect you positively or negatively. Um, and unfortunately, it, it did more of the of the former than the latter. But I think they're still both really good albums. Um, Resurrected is not bad, but at the same time, it's not the same band. You know, it's you're you're going two decades later, two and a half decades later and releasing an album with a different singer, you know, it's, it's a tough sell. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're not coming back to, with your original singer, um, it's, it's going to be tough, especially when the band hasn't been around for as long as they hadn't been. Um, you, you're, you're more living on your legacy at that point, which is great because the legacy, they have a strong legacy. Um, but if you, if, if you're going to reform and you're, you're living off that legacy, but you're so many years later and it's a completely different band, it's, it's kind of tough, you know, that's mm-hmm. just the only way I could say it. You know the, the 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 legacy that they left was pretty good, and then you know they put out resurrected, and they've got a few guys from the band. It's, it's, unless the music is really good, you, you're you're probably going to struggle. That's just the way I see it. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I I think it's a band worth checking out, but pretty limited career, pretty short. I think Zeb had a really interesting voice. Um, like his style the the music itself is really good the drumming is good i i'm a fan yeah i, I like this i like this stuff i mean they got really cool riffs um and you know typical the vocals from the first two albums is typical new album i mean that's the one thing that that's why they fit so well into this category because there's you know the riffing and the way it's recorded and the vocals and all that that it gives it the new album sound. But there's a little bit about it because it has that Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin influence. There's a little bit about it that's a little different, and that's that's good. That's that's what sets it apart. Um, but you could tell that um, unless they they would have kept going, they could have probably had a decent career. But you know who knows the the additional reasons beyond. Um, you know, controversial album covers that, that caused them to, to end up, you know, disbanding. I, 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 yeah, I think it was just one of those things that it was a little bit too hard to recover from the, 
the backlash. So, right. Um, so moving on, um, let's mention this is uh, Paul Diano or Diano the band. Um, only lasted from 1983 to 1985. This is following his expulsion from Iron Maiden. Uh, he formed a new band with Lee Slater on guitar, PJ Ward on guitar, uh, Mark Venables on keyboards, Kevin Brown on bass, and Dave Irving on drums. Um, this is the only real album that was released on, in 1984. Um, it's not horrible. It's not Iron Maiden. It, you know, I understand him trying to, to branch out and do other things, it, but I feel like his career was very unfocused for quite a while. You know, different projects, different bands. Um, you think, you know, working with a couple musicians for a longer period of time, you'd build that chemistry, but it, Paul Diana was chaotic to say the least during this time. Um, the second release for Diano is not technically a Diano album. Um, basically the, the only way that it was be released would be under that name. So he released Nomad, which the band was originally called Nomad in 2000. Um, you know, he, he moved on to Gog Magog not long after that. And, it, this is an album that kind of falls into the category of it's a bit forgettable and it's too bad because he's a very talented vocalist. If you're going to be the singer for Iron Maiden and you're going to wear leather and studs and, and talk about, you know, uh, all the things that you talk about and have Eddie as your, as your mascot. And then you're going to come out with your next album after you, you know, you, you, you get fired from this band and you come out with some pop synth bullshit, mm -hmm. okay, where you should have just joined the Tigers of Pang Tang if you were to come out with that, then, you know, you're <laughs> going to end up facing backlash and you're going to end up totally just damaging your career. 100%. That, I mean, I think that, that's that, fair because I've, I've, I failed to note that it was, it was very synthy and it is. <laughs> it's, it's, oh, wow. It's just not. Anything it's not like what I expected Maiden. because I mean, there's a lot of people that that have that mindset that the, those first two Iron Maiden albums are it. You know, that's they're so you know uh, grittier than the stuff that would come along, and then the guy that that they claim made it with grittier releases this, and it's yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that's part of the reason why he was let go. I mean, let's let's put aside the fact that. He um, had his uh, substance abuse issues. Let's put that aside. Part of the reason why Iron Maiden let him go was because he wasn't feeling the music anymore. He wasn't in agreement with the direction that the band wanted to go in musically. And so it was like, okay, well, if you're not with us, you're against this kind of vibe. Yeah. And, you know, you got to go. And so they found a singer that obviously was remarkably better you know, in, in that case, you know, because Paul Diano, he's, he's a gifted singer. He can sing, sounds great, but if you're going to go from, you know, singing killers in Wrathchild to, you know, some pop synth bullshit in the middle of the eighties, you know, that's you know closer to Madonna than it is Iron Maiden, Oof. you know, you're, 
you're going to have problems. You know, luckily he, he later on returned to the metal scene and to the metal genre and has been pretty much like that ever since. But man, you talk about going way out of whack for, for a small period of time. That is a career killer. Hence why his career took a lot to get back to. So. All right. Since that was kind of brief, I'm going to talk about Clovenhoof now. Now, Clovenhoof was around from 1979 through 1990, and then again from 2000 to the present. They're from Wolverhampton, West Midlands, England, and they released their first EP in 1982, The Opening Ritual. This had David Potter on vocals, Steve Rounds on guitar, Lee Payne on bass, and Kevin Poutney, or Poutney on drums. Um, so... Part of their gimmick was that they took on the personalities of elements and that was that was kind of the way they dressed, etc. There was their stage performance was, you know, the vocalist was water, guitarist was fire, bass was air and drums were earth. Um, this would continue until uh, their second full album, which was a live album. And then they would drop that afterward. Um, it was a popular thing in their area with their their local audience. So they had some some of that like groundswell interest. You know, people in in their towns and and around that area that really liked them, and they they did really well on that that you know club scene. But they just, uh, you know, didn't really take off from there. That first album, I think, is not that bad. It has some really interesting stuff on it, and I like David's vocals. Um, but that would be his only album. They would replace him with Rob Kendrick, who would be on Fighting Back, which was the live album. Um, it features all new songs, and that was released in 1986. So that's kind of an interesting live album, is you, you don't go back into the studio... You just record your second new album live. That's it's very strange. And then in 1988, they would release Dominator, and that would have Russ North on vocals, so he would replace Rob Kendrick. Uh, Andy Wood on guitar repa- replacing Steve Rounds, and John Brown on drums replacing Kevin Pountney. So that means that all you have is the original bassist by that point. So within... Um, you know, 10 years, not even 10 years, nine years, you've completely replaced your band. And, you know, that's, that's really tough to continue with a fan base. You know, you go to a show expecting to see your guys and they're not your guys. They're like, who are these people? You know, they're three albums, three vocalists. You're not going to succeed. You're not going to you're not going to succeed yeah. ever. I'm sorry. It's just not going to happen. Um, I mean, look, maybe you hit Pater on that third album and you know, all of a sudden, hey, I found I found the key to, to success. But man, that's going to be real difficult to, to keep an established band and, and fans, you know, at attention when you do something like that. I mean, to some degree, that actually happened within Flames. They had... Their first vocalist on the first album, second vocalist on their, their their EP they released, and then they finally got Anders in the band, 
and that's where they hit their stride. They finally kind of found that rhythm. So it does happen from time to time, but but you're not talking about one member changing. You're talking about every member changing within <laughs> that time. So it's it's hard to find that consistency. They released one more album um, before their breakup in 1989. That was The Sultan's Ransom. I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff on here. There's some talented musicians, um, but there's nothing that really, like, is a breakout hit, I would say. But that first album, Clovenhoof in 1984, is definitely worth a, ch- you know, a listen to check out. And then we're, we're going to talk more about them because of their resurgence in 2000 uh, on the next episode. But at this time, like, what did you think of Clovenhoof? All right, before we go on with anything else with Clovenhoof, okay, let's talk about that album cover for a second. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> the, you know, you, you, this is your first, you know, release. I mean, you obviously put the EP out, but you have this release, you know, that that's, that your, your, your first full-length album, and you have all four members of the band on the front cover. They're all kind of hovered close to each other, and whoever made the decision to make their hair – look like <laughs> fake fire is should be fucking fired and never do graphic art again. Okay, what the hell was that? Okay. It's not because great. Only, only one of them is supposed to be fire. Only one. That's true. That is a you know, I did not think about that. You're 100% right. They all should have their own elements in their hair. Exactly. Somebody should have been floating around like a freaking astronaut. The other dude should have been swimming underwater. Okay. And then you get the guy with the fire on his head. And, you know, what was the earth? The other one should just be fucking dirt. Okay. Uh, you're right. <laughs> Zero over 10. Dude, do not listen. <laughs> no, it's still a good album. It's, it's still interesting. It's it's not a bad album. I You know, listening to it today, it was not a bad album. You know, there was something about the vocalist. I can't pinpoint it. I get. I kept trying to think about it all day, but I had too many distractions to to think about. There was something about him that reminded me of someone else, and I, I want to say it was in the thrash scene, but I could be completely wrong. But I just the, the vocalist wasn't bad. I liked it. He there was something about him that reminded me of somebody else, and the music. The only thing I can say about the music is probably it's just it didn't have enough hooks to me. That's the only thing I could sit there and say. It, it really did not have enough hooks, or if the ones that did have hooks, just they just weren't good hooks. The ones that would just grab you and take That's you fair. in. That's fair. So that 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 was that was what I got. I mean, you know, listening to the live album a little bit. I mean, there's something about that. You know, was it truly live, or did you know did they add the live? You know, or did, or was it something where they just went out there and say hey, we're going to play new songs, and they decided to record it. You know, who knows the reasoning behind the way this was set up? It, but it, it was, was basically very unusual their thing. low budget way of filming, a, or filming for, of recording a second album. Um, because <laughs> that's low budget, right? They, they they really didn't have the money, and they they recorded their second album live, and then they decided to release it because it doesn't sound horrible. It's just not really a great live album either, but. <laughs> You know, it's it's an interesting choice, but that was that was basically it. They didn't they didn't you know have the the capabilities to just straight up release another album. So, okay, well, um, 
the other thing that I noticed about this, the songs on here sound like other songs from other bands from different periods of time. Uh, there's just some riffs or the way that they arrange the songs or something that there's a familiarity. There's that word again, that reminds me of other bands, other riffs, other songs that either the other band ripped off or they ripped off the other band, one of the two, but there's just way too many coincidences. And I'm like, okay, I can't, I can't pinpoint it. You know, I have to listen to it and study it really, really hard to, to, to kind of get that connection. But, uh, that's what I felt after listening like two or three songs from them. Okay. Uh, and I'll and I'll pinpoint it this way. Let me let me let me pull it up. What I think um, is one the one song that really reminded me of that, um, which would have been the song. I believe it's the, the song "Gates of Gehenna" or "Gehenna" or something like Gehenna. that. Yeah. That song, the the intro to that song, sounds like another song that I, I that I recognize, and I just can't I can't put my finger on it. It sounds a little bit like uh, like say "Bread Fan" or something like that. Um, the thing about it, like Clovenhoof, does have some really good guitar work still, though. Um, the solo, like at the end of the actual Cloven mm, yeah. song, is really good. The instrumental March of the Damned is really nice. It's it, you know, it's there's always this this struggle with some of these older recordings like this that were done with pretty low budget. Is the music probably would be better if it was recorded with you know good equipment? Well, you know, when I when I was taking music production back in 1990 91. <clears throat> the one thing I was told was a good song is a good song. It's a hundred percent true. No matter how roughly it's recorded. So what, what happens is, you know, it, then it becomes your personal taste as to, you know, do I like this song because it's a good song? Or do I like this song because it's got really good production? You know, I think we've talked about that. We kind of briefly mentioned that with the Motley Crue, Motley Crue self-titled album mm-hmm. with John Karabi, you know, Matt mentioned, you know, I love that album. It's got the great. It's got great production. Who gives a rat's ass about the fucking production if the songs suck? All right. <laughs> and in my personal opinion, is that a lot of the songs on there suck. You know, Hooligans Holiday is the best song in that fucking album, in my opinion. Sounds like Motley Crue with a different singer. Okay, and that's exactly what they were trying to achieve, but they didn't achieve it for 10, 12 songs. They achieved it for one. You know, and then the rest of it was. The other thing they were trying to achieve, which was be alternative or be grungy, and that was a fucking miserable failure. <laughs> <laughs> okay? Because guess what? If it was that good of a fucking album, then they would have put another album out with John Karabi, and they would have never t- taken Vince Neil back. But guess what? It sucked. And that's the reason why they got Vince Neil back. And then they put out another shitty album after that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You got me started. Well, damn. How, uh, tell us how you really feel. <laughs> Well, we've talked about Molly Cruz's album before, but you know, you were you were referencing it, it. It's rough to listen to. Yeah, it is. It's not the greatest, but you know, like I said, good songs are good songs. The the riffs were decent. Um, so if they were better songs or you know better 
or again, to me, the hook. If there's got a better hook, it'll grab you. If it doesn't, then there's got to there's got to be something else that's good about it. And sometimes, because there's a lack of production, there's certain things that are just missing. Yeah. All right. So moving on, who do you got? All right, I got Grim Reaper, and a lot of people are going to know who Grim Reaper are. Um, their claim to fame, for the most part. MTV era, the song See You in Hell. That was my first exposure to them. It was the first song that they had as a single. And to this day, I still listen to that song. It is a cool song. It is the epitome of the 80s. Um, it is definitely a British version of 80s metal. Um, it is, you know, the 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 second wave of New Album was moving new album in a different direction but you could still see that there was that foundation um and so grim reaper had that foundation but they were definitely a little bit more modern as far as the other bands that were coming out of that um that scene but you know 1983 they released their first album so actually they formed in 1979 and they were together until 1988 um they're from droywich spa england and their first album came out in 1983. It was See You in Hell. So we got Steve Grimman on vocals, Nick Bocott on guitars, Steve, uh, excuse me, Dave Wanklin on bass, and Lee Harris on drums. Um, that album is just cool. I mean, I listened to it. We That was one of the albums that I listened to when we were doing the research for 80, 80s glam metal um, and some other, some other stuff. And that was... That was right there, right in the middle, man. 1983. I mean, not in the middle of the of the the heyday of of new album, and I I just thought it was super cool. I mean, it had the 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 screaming vocals, uh, killer riff. You know, uh, Nick Bocott and his guitars. Uh, it, it, he was just a really good guitar player. Um, I mean, to the point where he ended up becoming a. Um, a columnist for guitar, I don't know if it was Guitar World or for Guitar for the Practicing Musician. I can't remember which magazine. I think it was Guitar World, but he became, you know, a, a, a monthly columnist for them. And so that that was that's pretty cool. So that tells you, you know, he he has a lot of music theory, and he's a really good guitar player. Yeah, his his songwriting and his solos are excellent. You know, and then uh, a couple years later, um, they released the album Fear No Evil, which much like See You in Hell, the, the title track is the lead track off of the album. Probably the best song on the album. And it it that's the one that gets the most airplay. That's what attracted me to that, to that album. I have both of them on vinyl, actually. The original 1980, early 80s versions. Um, so, and the only difference with Fear No Evil and See You in Hell is Mark Simon replaces Lee Harris on drums. Um... You know, the band was finding some success in the United States, but then essentially it, it you know, they've got that MTV success and the the music scene is moving away from the the real uh uh the 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 devil and, and the demons and wizards and all that stuff. a lot certain parts of the scene is moving away from that arena and so they decided that they wanted to move away from that arena but still trying to keep a toe in the ground 
in that arena. So they released Rocky to Hell. It's a little more um, pop metally, a little more glammy than what they originally started out as. Not a bad song, but definitely a song for that time period. So um, they were they were an interesting band. Um, I, I liked them for the, the shorter period of time that they were around in the 80s. Um, and they were, they had their issues. I mean, it, part of it was record company and management, again, you know, destroying things that they shouldn't even be meddling with. I mean, I like this period of time for, for the band. Um, See You in Hell, great album. Fear No Evil is a pretty good follow-up. It's not, it's it's a sophomore slump to a degree, but it's not a bad album by any stretch. And then Rock You to Hell, yeah, it's a weird period of time because in the U.S. you have the thrash scene really growing, and then you also have the glam scene kind of starting to die out to some degree. Not not necessarily die out. That's the wrong way to put it. Um, it was peaking. It was it was peaking. Yeah, it was. I mean, Eighty seven was, was a huge. It year. was hitting its high point, and it wouldn't be long before it died out. I guess is what I was more trying to say. Um, so, you know, you're going to lead into the nineties. So they're only a few years away from grunge. So kind of a weird time, but yeah, record company issues, uh, legal issues. So basically when Rock You to Hell came out, they had recorded the album with Ebony and Ebony had did such a shitty job of recording it that they left and they went to RCA and they re-recorded the entire album and released that. Well, they basically had to spend every dime they had fighting Ebony because they there was a, a lawsuit for, you know, the music, etc., which rightfully so, but at the same time, they weren't going to find success with the crappy quality of their original recording. So basically they just said, let's disband, let's go our separate ways, this has cost too much mentally, physically, monetarily, and then it, that really killed Grim Reaper for a while. Um, they did resurface in 2006, which we're going to talk about more on the next episode. Um, but uh, this t- period of time, those three albums, I think, are still really good. Oh, it's a, it's a solid trilogy of albums, that's for sure. I mean, and that that's the best way to put it, solid. Were they, you know, were they super outstanding? There's some there's some low points on the albums. Let's let's not let's not mince words about it. But they're solid. They're good albums, and especially for that time period, especially for that era of music, and that 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 genre. Mm-hmm. So you know, I like them, and I still I mean, I have their CDs. I have I, I've got them all. Album covers. I like the first one for See You in Hell. Um, I think it's I don't know if it's Fear Fear No Evil or Rocky to Hell. I think it's Fear No Evil. It's just really cheesy, um, but. Cheesy in a weird, like it's a cartoonish kind of way, and and supposedly stained glass window. It's just kind of odd. Um, I like the first one though. See you and how with the with the um, the guy on the horse. Yeah, you know that's pretty cool. I, I, so. I mean, I thought Fear No Evil was kind of cool. He's riding a motorcycle, going through the the stained glass, 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 and. Uh, the Grim Reaper just being on the third one, it's, you know, it's kind of cool. But, yeah, that first album covers the best one for sure. Um, so, moving on, we've we've got one more band, major band that we're going to mention, and just a kind of a couple others that I thought were interesting. Um, Tokyo Blade. 
Now, Tokyo Blade uh, started in 1979 through 1991, then 95 through 98, and then 2007 through present. They're from Salisbury, Wiltshire, England, and their first album came out in 1983, Tokyo Blade. This had Alan Marsh on vocals, Andy Bolton on guitar, John Wiggins on guitar, Andy Robbins on bass, and Steve Pierce on drums. Now, this is a great album. Um, I really like it. It had mainstream appeal in, in England. It had mainstream appeal in Japan. Um, I don't know as much about the success in the U.S., um, but this is a really good album. Then they followed that up with Night of the Blade in 1984, which they originally recorded entirely with the vocals uh, from Alan Marsh, and then they decided to replace him with Vicky James Wright on vocals. Um, and then Andy Wrighton on bass, who uh, replaced Andy Robbins. Uh, they, in 1998, they released Night, Night of the Blade the night before. So that was kind of a, a, a joke name because they re-released it with the original vocals. Um, I think this is also a really good album and probably their peak because following that, they released... Black Hearts and Jaded Spades in 1985. It was a huge commercial failure. Honestly, not a very good album. And um, you gotta look. It, if you're listening to this, look up the album cover for Black Hearts and Jaded Spades. <laughs> it's horrible. It's not. It's it's <laughs> it's weird as it shit. It is horrible. Um, and then they released "Ain't Misbehavin" in 1987. Now this, you know, it's a good thing that they didn't put uh, the album cover Blackhearts on that "Ain't Misbehavin" cover. Oh gosh, <laughs> that would have been really bad. So "Ain't Misbehavin" is where the band falls apart. So you you have a, two pretty successful albums and then one failure and then. Basically, most of the band leaves. You have uh, Peter Zito on vocals replacing Vicky James Wright, Chris Stover on bass replacing Andy Wrighton, Alex Lee on drums replacing Steve Pierce, and John Wiggins also left, leaving Andy Bolton the only original member. And this is where the studio said, we're going to recreate a band for you because we we don't want Tokyo Blade to disappear because they had such such success on those first two albums and then in 1989 they released No Remorse and the same thing happens again you have an entirely new lineup with Andy Bolton the only re- returning member again so Michael Paws on vocals uh, Martin Mockwitz on keyboards Dale Sell on bass and Hans Jurgen Aster on drums and these two albums are such a departure from what the first two albums are. It's really hard to it's hard to recommend even just listening just to, to, to hear, I guess. I'm not a big fan, you know, for, for coming out of two remarkable albums and then just just seeing a band just fall to chaos, it's 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 really tough. Um, they broke up in 1991 and re- would reform twice more in the 90s and 2000s. Um, the last two albums, like I said, just such a different sound. But those first two albums, definitely recommended. Listen to those two. I I really really enjoy that song "Unleash the Beast" that's on um, "Night of the Blade." Yes. Um, to the point, it's funny. I had heard that, so I've I've 
I've mentioned this probably really, really, really early on on this when we started doing these podcasts. Um, I used to listen to a radio station in New York on uh, WXRK called, and the, the show was called uh, Heavy Metal from Hell. That is where I got first exposed to Tokyo Blade and Unleashed a Beast. I, I had a tape of that show that I used to listen to in my car, and I remember that song. So over time, I, I lost my tapes uh, or, or threw them away. Um, I did not remember who that song was, who that artist was, or anything. And for years, when the, the big MP3 boom came out in, in the, the late 90s, uh, I was like, man, who is this band? And how do I find them? And I don't remember what triggered it, but I remember seeing the name Tokyo Blade, and I said, oh, I remember these guys, kind of, and then I listened to that album, or I picked up that album, or a song from that album, I'm like, that's it, that's the song, that's the song, Unleash the Beast, and uh, it's pretty, I mean, it's on my playlist now, it's it's super cool, I love that song. At least at least there's, uh, what what is it, Shazam and stuff like that now, but man, for the longest time, if you didn't remember what a song was, you were out of oh, luck. I mean... I used to work at the record store and I still couldn't figure it out, you know, because back then, you know, there was, um, I can't remember what it's called now, but there used to be a catalog sort of, you know, so where you and I work now, we have that catalog of profiles for the, for the, for the moldings. The catalog used to look just like that, but it was paper, um, no plastic sheets in between. And so it was, it was probably, I've got to say eight, nine inches thick of just paper and it would tell you stuff by song titles stuff by album titles artists it was crazy how detailed this was that's how big this this book was well in the middle 90s a company came out with um something called muse and it was a computer touchscreen um look like a uh look like a video game box and you touch the screen and you could have it search anything in the database and it had a database of everything or almost everything that was in print on some sort of record company's list okay and the albums the songs the the song artists and i think it was sometimes i think they had songwriters i couldn't remember that's how you were able to find stuff. Or you could have the guy come up to you and start singing you, hey, do you know this song? It, it, it says I love you in it. And you're There's like. There's only like two songs with that in it. So that you go, that's boys to men. And he goes, yes. And he, <laughs> he gets this, the cassette single. You know how many times that happened to me and I got the song right? It was just amazing. I mean, it wasn't straight up "I love you." That that's the joke we always used to make that people would go. The song has "I love you" in it, and like, no shit, really? Yeah, it's like the just joke in retail <laughs> where you say, "Like, can I help you with something?" And they're like, "If you could find a million dollars." Yeah, it's the same oh, crap. Geez, yeah. Anyway, Tokyo Blade, Night of the Blade, good album. Um, first album, Tokyo Blade is also very good. Yes, I agree with you. Everything else goes south from there. And we'll talk more about them next time. We will talk more about them on the next episode. So briefly, I just want to touch on a couple of these, and I know you had a couple you wanted to mention as well. Um, so there was a band in 1985, sorry, there was a band in 1983 that lasted till 1987 called 
Dragon Slayer. Um, so they were known as Heavy Thunder from 1978 to 1980, and then Slayer from 1980 to 1983, which I thought was kind of fun. Slayer! Um, they released one EP in 1983 called I Want Your Life, and then they just kind of, you know, disappeared. Um, but two active bands as known as Slayer at the same time, I thought was kind of interesting. And then one called Deep Machine, which was around from 1979 to who knows, uh, because they didn't last very long. Um, Kevin Hayborn from Angel Witch was briefly a member. Roger Marsden was a member who would leave to join EF Band that we previously talked about. And they supported Lone Wolf, which was uh, fronted by Paul Diano. Um, Andy Wrighton and John Wiggins were members that would also join Tokyo Blade that we just talked about. So uh, a little bit of a pedigree there. Kind of interesting. Six degrees of Paul Diano. There you go. (laughs) All right. And the the bands I just wanted to touch uh, upon real quick um, is a band called Blitzkrieg, which many people who are Metallica fans would know. Um, That band uh, started in 1980. They were together for basically a year. Broke up, got back together in 84, stuck around until 91, broke up again, got back together again the next year for a couple more years, uh, so from 92 to 94, broke up again, got back together a couple years later, 96 to 99, and then they got back together in 2001 to, to currently still together. Um, their claim to fame is the single that they released, uh, Buried Alive with Blitzkrieg on the backside, and Blitzkrieg was covered by Metallica. It's a really, really cool song. Um, and their version uh, is not as, quote-unquote, heavy as Metallica's version, but still, you know, it's got, you know, like sort of like how Diamond Head wasn't as heavy as Metallica's version, um, but it's still understandable, Still, it's still got the the, the the quick speed to it that that the the Metallica version has so it's a pretty cool uh single if you if you ever get a chance to listen to it get, give it a shot um and then they released an album in 1985 called the time for changes and then last but not least the one band that kind of has been meddling around this whole time period playing you know and and getting more and more notoriety I guess you say is, is that word um is a band called Venom, which a lot of you people out there will know. Um, they formed in 1978 up until 1992. Then they got back together again in 95 until 2002. And then 2005, they're still together. There's actually two two versions of the band out right now. Um, but back then, they released their first album uh, in 1981 called Welcome to Hell. Uh, Black Metal came out in 1982. And because of that, um, actually, after... Uh, 1982, what was it? Oh, At War with Satan was their third yes. album. And, and possessed, 1985, Calm Before the Storm, 1987. You know, I used to have Possessed, and I don't know what the hell happened to that that record, but I had it and it disappeared on me. Um, so Venom, you know, they were not a new album band. They were basically a, for lack of a better way of saying it, they were a heavy metal version of Motorhead. Because Motorhead never said that they were heavy metal, yeah. right? But Venom was definitely heavy metal and venom had an eerily similar sound to motorhead it was just you know a really bad recording is just very very demo like but that's the way they put it out not a lot of bass um drums sounded like trash um so but that was the inspiration to an entire genre called black metal um and so 
even though Venom's music has nothing to do with black metal, um, the imagery, the the um, song lyrics, and the really shitty sounding recordings all uh, became uh, a major staple in black metal that, for the most part in some cases, is still around today. They probably improved the recording techniques, but the, uh, the imagery and the song lyrics are still owed to a debt to uh to even Venom. the font that was on that first black metal album uh, or just say first on that black metal album um was reused on a lot of black metal albums <laughs> that followed it yeah yeah venom today is known as uh venom inc as well as venom and there's different guys from the original venom art that are in each of the bands so it's a very strange dynamic that's going on right now but we'll talk about that some more next week so really that wraps up what we're going to be talking about for this episode but we're going to follow up with a lot of these bands on the next one uh but for now we're going to get to our big four which is big four diamond head songs big four diamond head songs um forgot who went first last week i forgot as well (laughs) um so (laughs) i think I think I did. So if you'd like to go first this time, go ahead. Sure, why not? Okay, so Big Four Diamond Head songs. We have a very limited catalog here. Um, so it's it's also almost a matter of which ones did we like more that are going to be similar and in which order do we like them. Um, so for me, uh, number four, and this is a song that I haven't listened to too much, but what I did listen to, I really, really liked. I think it's got a killer riff, and that is "Sweet and Innocent." Um, that 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 song is just a killer, killer riff, man. I mean, I was like, I'm digging this riff, and the just the song itself was was uh, was pretty good. So it's my number four. It it jumped some other songs. Uh, number three, because of its heavy riff, because of the song structure that is extremely stolen by Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> especially their song seek and destroy the song sucking my love um if you listen to sucking my love you will hear how at the beginning of seek and destroy it goes into that um that little isolated guitar track and then it comes into the whole band jamming in they they did that on this song and then the the a little bit of the lick on that on that riff sounds like seek and destroy so that's my number three number two it's electric that is just a catchy song i mean i don't know how else to, to put it but that song is extremely catchy i like it a lot um the metallica version it's funny, it's just as catchy, but there's something about it that you say to yourself, Metallica shouldn't really be covering the song, but they did a good job on the song anyway, but they really probably shouldn't have covered it. They did, they did a better job with Helpless and Am I Evil. Uh, and leading to that number one song for me is the classic Am I Evil um, from Diamond Head. It's just, there's, it, it's what started it all for, for Diamond Head. It's what pretty much almost started it all for Metallica, so... That's my big four Diamond Head songs. What do you got? Uh, so we do have some crossover. Um, so my number four is going to be a little bit of a surprise, but I'll explain it. Um, my number four is Knight of the Swords off of Canterbury. And there, part of it is that I'm a, a big fan of the Elric novels. They're a series of fantasy novels. 
and this song is directly about that it's about a character from those books so um it's not just that there is an awesome guitar solo that is pretty long and i would say the the third quarter of the song um and the bass work is actually really nice so it's it's one of the standout tracks on the album um because there's not a lot of standout on that album to be honest it's not a very good album <laughs> um but it could be sitting down it's still going to stand out yeah, right <laughs> that particular album i mean pr- that particular song though is really good and it's worth the listen it goes on a little bit too long but for me it has that like that importance in a different way so i'm i'm a fan of the song um uh, my number two is or sorry my number three is your number three which is sucking my love great song um you know the riff is just super catchy and uh the like i don't know the just the subject matter it's just great <laughs> sorry <laughs> um i don't know what it's about but yeah um so mm. number number two, uh sorry my number two is the prince uh i always really like that riff um it's got some keyboards in it which i think has a nice effect and it's it, to me, it's kind of a standout. There was, you know, there's one song that stands out about above all the others, though, and that's my number one, and that's "Am I Evil?" And you're 100 percent right. It it made multiple careers with that song. Um, it it's just it tells a really cool story. It has a great riff. It's memorable. Um, the guitar work is great. The singing is probably the best. On that album, it's just it's the best track. So um, their first album, definitely the standout. Borrowed time, good stuff. But man, that first album is just killer. It's just sad that they didn't continue that on. Yeah, it's it's sad that they didn't continue in that vein of music because they they made some good riffs. Yes, they made some good songs. All right, well, that's our big four Diamond Head songs, and that's the end of this week's show. If you haven't done so already, don't forget to click the like or subscribe button and then download the show on your favorite podcast platform so you can listen to us anytime, anyplace, anywhere. And don't forget you can interact with us by commenting on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can send us a DM as well. If you listen to us on YouTube, be sure to leave us a comment, or you can send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com. So remember to tune into the next episode for the conclusion of our three-part series of the new wave of British heavy metal. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe, and always turn it up to 11. See ya!